Hi, Sacred Tension fans. My name is Matt Langston, and I play in a band called Eleventy-Seven. I'm an artist, a producer, and I also host my own podcast right here on Rock Candy called Eleventy Life. We talk with the people behind your favorite songs and albums, from the writers to the producers, and everyone in between. And we're not asking your favorite artists the same old boring questions like "Where did your band name come from?" and "Who's your favorite Friends character?" We're asking questions like "Why did your marriage fail?" "Where does love come from?" "Is God real?" It is a show about the importance of creativity and pursuing your passion. And we don't let guests leave until it gets a little bit uncomfortable. So check it out right here on Rock Candy and your favorite podcast app. So the first part of that session was uh, filled with a lot of anxiety, but then transitioned into this absolutely amazing experience where I felt connected with the universe. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long, and I am here with Maggie Eli. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yes. So we uh, got connected through our mutual friend, Justin Bryant Dozier, who does all the visual work for this show. He's also on my uh, Patreon show, House of Heretics. Uh, Yeah, so Maggie is here to talk with us about mental health and psychedelics and her personal experience of using psychedelics to to help with her depression. So with that, that is the extent of your story. That is all I know. Oh, wow, okay. Um, Yeah, that, that is all I know. And so if you could just take it from there and tell some of your story. Yeah. So, um, well, I've experienced trauma for the majority of my life. I was raised by an alcoholic father um, who is also diagnosed bipolar but untreated for it um, and a very abusive person. So had about 19 years of of, um, heavy trauma in that and then started exhibiting symptoms of PTSD, unbeknownst to me. I mean, you experience a lot of disassociation with yourself during that time. So it was, I was experienced five years, about five, six years of PTSD until I finally like got diagnosed. And what, at what age was this? Uh, 25. I'm 20. Okay. It was this year. Okay. Yeah. So the abuse started when I was about five and lasted until I was about 19. And then got diagnosed and took the MDMA psycho-assisted therapy when I was 25. So you say uh, psycho-assistive therapy. So this was in a professional setting, in a clinical setting. Yes. Yeah. So I'll go into that. So um, I got accepted into a research study for MDMA-assisted therapy. And uh, it's so it's getting approved by the FDA. 
Um, it's currently actually just officially went into zone three. They're now recruiting That's for awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. That's so good. Okay, so so important note here. First of all, use of psychedelics is currently illegal. Yes. <laughs> in the United States. So, you know, I have a lot of listeners who actually, when when it came out that I was doing this interview, and I've been talking about psychedelic some on my other shows, on other episodes, uh, especially Michael Pollan's recent book, Changing How to Change Your Mind, which is about psychedelics and the benefits of psychedelics, and it's a great book. But a lot of listeners have gotten back to me saying that they're really uncomfortable with the subject. They, they are uncomfortable with me bringing up even bringing up the subject because it's it's seen as almost a form of endorsement. And so I just have to say, it's a fascinating subject. I think that it has enormous potential for good, but it is still being studied. It is still illegal. And if you do psychedelics, please make sure that it is within a clinical capacity like this. Yeah. And I'm actually, I'm going to add to that as well, because I think people have a, a misconception when I start to talk about it. Um, everything is very highly monitored. I'm with their therapist the entire time I was on the drug, uh, my experience would have been vastly different and probably very hurtful and negative towards my trauma if I hadn't had ther a therapist and a psychiatrist there with me the entire time. Um, it's not something to be done lightly if you have trauma because it brings up a lot of that trauma. And if you don't know how to handle it or you don't have somebody there who's licensed to help you handle it, it can go very badly. Also, the, Absolutely. Yeah, the MDMA that I took is a government grade. So there's nothing, you know, there's nothing being cut. Um, there's no other drugs that I may not know that are in it, um, which is not the case when you buy MDMA off the street. Oftentimes it's cut with other methamphetamines or uh, other hallucinogenics. So you don't really know what you're getting. Right. Okay. So when you say MDMA, can you describe can you explain what that is? Um, so it's also known as ecstasy or molly. Yes. Um, By the way, I have the perfect title for this show. Oh, yeah. What's it? When Maggie Met Molly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the perfect title. So, okay. So it, it is, ex you know, colloquially known as ecstasy. Mm -hmm. And it's technically not even a psychedelic. It's a synthetic stimulant okay. drug commonly known as Got ecstasy it. and not technically a psychedelic. It has psychoactive uh, properties, but it doesn't actually fall into the realm of psychedelics. Okay. Got it. So tell us about your trip. Tell us about the, the leading up to your, your therapy and then what it was like to go through it. Yeah, okay, so um, I feel like, so my story deserves a little bit of background. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, uh, for sure. Yeah, so um, besides the, the 19 years of trauma, um, I was married, I got married at 19. Uh, looking back and having gone through therapy, I now realize that a lot of my decisions at that point were fueled by my desire to get out of the abusive uh, situation I was in. Um, so I got married very young and uh, just a year ago now, my husband and I separated. He had been cheating on me throughout our entire relationship. Uh, it was a very codependent relationship. I hadn't worked through any of my problems, so very much had 
attached my worth and value to being a wife and uh, my religious beliefs at that time. And so having that system crumble is really what led me to getting help for all my other issues. Mm. I uh, started seeing two different therapists and started going to a 12-step program for codependency. Um, Was it CODA? Yeah, CODA. I I am in CODA as well. Oh, awesome. <laughs> CODA is the best free therapy in the it's world. Ama- every, I feel like every person needs to go through it. Even if you're I, the healthiest human on earth, you can still grow from it. Yeah, CODA saved my life. CODA also saved my partnership with my boyfriend. Oh, that's but, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. That's an aside. That's a whole other show. Yeah. So, yeah I sorry. Feel like, didn't, mean, didn't mean to interrupt. No, no. It's cool. I feel like if I had found CODA at the beginning of my marriage, my marriage might not have ended the way it did. Uh, I mean, there's like yeah. a lot of other factors into that as well, but it would have been a lot healthier relationship. That's for sure. Mm, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I got into two different, I was going to two different therapists. I was t- going to CODA. I found out about the trial going on in Charleston and I was just, I was at rock bottom. I was suicidal, extremely depressed. I was self-harming again, which has been a thing that I've, um, ebbed and flowed in my life of of using self-harm as a coping mechanism and then getting away from it and then falling back into it so i was in a period uh, the worst period of my life of self-harm in suicidal ideation um and just knew that i needed some drastic change in my life um or else it wasn't going to be around much longer uh so my husband and i separated and I heard about all these different things and I just went for them. So I heard about the MDMA trial. Um, my One of my therapists had told me that I had symptoms of PTSD. And I was just like, okay, well, you know, she said that because she, like her practice wasn't in diagnosing things like that. She was like, I don't feel comfortable diagnosing you as having PTSD, but that's what it sounds like. So I contacted them and that's what I said. I said, hi, I'm at the end of my rope. Uh, I don't even know if I have PTSD, but I thought I would give this a chance. And, you know, you guys can tell me if I don't or whatever. Yeah, um, sure. And so, yeah, they were like, awesome. Uh, there are just a few requirements, you know, like I had to live in a specific area, um, which was Charleston. And I was so um, and I had to be medically healthy enough to go through it. And then uh, if I had PTSD, it had to be in like a in a way that they could gauge it. So for the research portion of the whole thing, they needed to be able to see if my PTSD got worse or better or stayed the same after this therapy. So it turns out, yes, I definitely had PTSD. <laughs> um and you go through preliminary stuff where you kind of talk about what it is you're dealing with and how you're doing health-wise and all that stuff, kind of how your PTSD is manifesting. Um, and then you do your first drug session, which mm. you, so you have your two, uh, two therapists there that you've kind of, they, you know, they know your background. You guys, we've talked with non-drugs in the mix and, uh, it's an entire weekend, actually. So you meet on the Friday night and you go over everything one final time, talk about any intentions that you want to have. They remind you of like all of the stuff you're not supposed to do 12 hours in advance. You know, like don't do any alcohol, drink any alcohol. You know, don't you can't have food after a certain hour. <clears throat> 
Yeah. So it's a really rigorous process. Yes. Then. Yeah. They're very, and you also talk about like if you'd taken any medications that week, you know, like they go full in on how you're doing health wise and making sure that you are in a healthy place to be doing this therapy. Mm. And then uh, you get there. Um, I got there on a Saturday morning and you take the drug and then you spend all Saturday doing the psycho assisted therapy while experiencing the drug. And then you spend mm. the night and then they come back in the morning. I have like a night assistant that, you know, just checks on me and gets me food and stuff like that. Um, and then they'll come back in the morning and do about two hours of just regular, like integrative therapy, just kind of, you know, talking about anything else that might have come up or I've processed mm. during the night. And then I actually have somebody pick me up from there and drive me home. So I'm not driving at all during that weekend. So right. it's all very monitored and safety yeah. oriented. That's that's great. And so did you do the one session or did you do multiple sessions? So um, you do a total of three sessions. Okay. They're each a month apart. Okay. Um, and you have regular therapy uh, peppered throughout the, the month after you do each session. So kind of, once mm. again, like helping you process anything that's coming up. Because the therapy session, you do talk and process a lot during your therapy session when you're on MDMA. But it's kind of like a catalyst in the sense that you you just open these doors during that session to just kind of have a lot of stuff come up. And so they're actually on call for me the entire time during the drug trial. Um, yeah. So I could call them at any time, you know, anything came, if anything came up that I was having a really hard time dealing with or processing, I could call them mm. and talk to them. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and in the future when I think I hope and I think that, you know, psychedelics and psychoactive drugs are going to be used much, much, much more to help mental illness and depression. This is the kind of rigor that is going to go into it. Yeah. So, you know, it isn't going to be, you know, this is a miscommunication, I think, you know, or this is a misunderstanding, I think, that a lot of people have about psychedelics, that the future of psychedelics helping people with mental illness, that it's just going to be a free for all that it's just going to be this totally uncontrolled thing where it's like you know where it's like you're you you're going to go to your psychedelic store the way you go to your <laughs> pot store in Oregon yeah <laughs> and and get some get some acid or whatever it isn't going to be like that at all it it will probably be within this incredibly controlled setting yeah well that's the other thing that there's like been some miscommunication as well or misunderstanding people think that it's a prescription like i got prescribed mdma like you would get prescribed right. xanax or you know vicodin for pain or something like that like that's not the case at all no i do yeah. i at no point did i have a container of mdma <laughs> <laughs> at no point <laughs> i i sit there they bring it out they like i mean they literally have this booklet they take my blood pressure and my heart rate and they write all of that down and then they write down the container number that they use for the like everything is very much monitored and 
you know, it's not like, oh, here's here's a bottle of 30 pills of MDMA. Have fun. That's not the way it works. Yeah, I think the way Michael Pollan put it in his book, How to Change Your Mind, was that they aren't prescribing a drug as much as they are prescribing an experience. And it's usually like a very rare experience. That's the perfect way to write Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. So what they're doing, because really it's the experience that changes. It's the experience that that reconfigures and changes you in really profound ways, at least, you know, what I understand from the experience, from what I've read and heard and so on. So what was the experience like? Oh, where it gets a lot more difficult. Um, I can imagine, yeah. So the setting was very, it felt very safe and welcoming. Um, and the actual experience of the drug, each session was really different for me. Because so a little bit of background from for myself, I having a father who uh, was a substance abuser, never used substances at all. I was 22 until I really even would like drink socially at all had never smoked, never smoked a cigarette, like literally, had not used any form of substances. I mean, this is my first drug experience was taking MDMA to help trauma. <laughs> so my first session, I was very nervous and had massive amounts of anxiety and panic about, well, what's what if the drug isn't working? And, um, you know, like, what if I'm a person that this just like is going to fail and it's not going to do anything mm. for me? Um, so the first part of that session was uh, filled with a lot of anxiety, but then transitioned into this absolutely amazing experience where I felt connected with the universe. And it's not the first time I've ever felt that way either. Uh, there are a few different points in my life where, you know, when I was, I used to be a fundamentalist Christian. I am not anymore. <laughs> I, uh, I would have at that point described it as an encounter with God. Um, you know, so it's not the first time I'd ever felt this this oneness, but it was definitely the clearest I'd ever felt mm. it. So it wasn't it wasn't overwhelming. It was just like I finally was fully at peace with who I am and realized that I only like my only purpose on this earth is just to be wholly me. Like fully whoever I am, that's all I need to do. Um, so it transitioned from a lot of anxiety uh, to just a lot of calmness and peace and clarity. And then towards the end of that first session, I finally started to allow myself to feel all of the terror and pain my death had ever caused me. Um, so it's a, a large scale of emotions there. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and my second and third session just got kind of more and more intense. Um, mm. My third session, I had some repressed memories come up and they were extremely difficult to process and handle. So my most mm. difficult session was my, my third session. Mm. I was actually pretty suicidal for the, the two weeks after that third session. So having my doctor's names were Sarah and Xenia, having Sarah and Xenia being able to call them and talk to them and meet with them after that third session was absolutely vital to my recovery. 
Absolutely. So that's, uh, that's amazing. And what has life been? I mean, I'm sure there's much more there to get into. And if there is, please do so. How did it shift things for you? Yeah, so the um, while on MDMA, it was like I could look at all my trauma without all of the shame and and feelings of blame. And not blame for other people, blame for myself. I always blamed myself for either not being enough or for doing something wrong. You know, it was always my own fault in my own eyes. And with the experience of the drug, I finally was able to step outside of that and view my trauma for what it really was. Mm, You know, we live, yeah, we live in this broken world and we're human beings that sometimes just kind of flounder through it and we hurt other human beings. And that's the other thing is I think a lot of people would think that being able to look at the trauma would make me really like much angrier at my father or hate him or anything like that. And, and of course there was a period where I finally let myself be angry because for so long I just didn't even process that. I didn't process my anger or my hurt. Or, you know, like, your dad is supposed to be the one that protects you, not the one that hurts you. So it's finally allowing myself to feel those emotions and process through them. And I think that I have a less angry, less, less anger towards my dad than I did at the beginning. So during the drug experience, I'm able to step back from that shame and look at the trauma and see the trauma for what it is and then see how it triggers me and see how, you know, like being in certain situations will bring up that trauma. And now um, it's not that the trauma never gets brought up. It's that I can actually see it happening. So pre-therapy, it was just like, you know, I, I'm in the middle of all of these emotions and I can't see the shore. It's like, uh, I went surfing recently and got caught in the middle of a storm. It just like, it, these clouds came in out of nowhere and it started pouring rain immediately. It was like, it went from a light rain to just crazy and the waves got huge and massive and I could no longer see the shore. I couldn't see the other people I was surfing with. Um, it's kind of like that. It's just like, you are just going about your life and everything's fine and then all of a sudden everything's not fine and you can't see the shore and you can't see where you're supposed to go or where you're going from and you have no idea why it happened. It's now like I can see the storm clouds rolling in. I can see why I'm starting to get upset. I can feel myself start to get depressed and I can see why. Uh, Like, you know, Let's say I have an interaction with somebody in the grocery store and I'm starting to feel depressed afterwards. I can now see, okay, that person said something that reminded me of how my dad used to talk to me. And it's bringing up those emotions of feeling less than and worthless that I Mm. so deeply felt when I was, you know, talked to in that manner. And then instead of just getting drowned out by these emotions, I can go, wow, that was a really hurtful period in my life. That person wasn't trying to make me feel this way. You know, like the person that I I had that exchange with in the grocery store wasn't trying to make me feel less than. They didn't know that taking that specific tone of voice would bring up all this for me. This is just me. And then I can 
mm. move on and continue in a healthy manner with those emotions and not invalidating my emotions either. Cause for so often, you know, it's just like, Oh, well, you're just being a baby or you're just being sensitive and stuff that minimizes myself, but actually being able to say like, Hey, you lived through some really difficult stuff and mm. I developed coping mechanisms to help myself survive. And those are valid emotions. They're not healthy or helpful now, but they're valid. Yeah, that that's incredible. And so it what it kind of sounds like is that you got from these sessions with MDMA what a lot of people get from many sessions from be, with behavioral cognitive therapy. And I'm a big fan <clears throat> of behavioral cognitive therapy. I've benefited a lot from it. Mm-hmm. But it but it kind of sounds like these sessions just like help knock stuff loose and helped you see things and realize things. Correct me if I'm wrong. That might that you might have come to or probably would have come to in in traditional therapy, but maybe just with more time. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I had gone through some therapy in the in the past and. Um, I honestly don't know if without the MDMA, I would have ever been able to step back from so much of the shame. Wow. So it's even more than that. It is you you don't know if you would have even been able to get to this point. Yeah, I, I honestly don't. Okay. Um, wow. I think that I would have been able to process some of the stuff I've processed now. Um, but I don't know if I would have ever allowed myself really to, to dive into some of the areas I've gotten to. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And, you know, I, I'm also a, I also live with PTSD. It's very, very faint now. You Mm -hmm. know, it's, I I was, so, you know, the, the trauma of being gay and the conservative church and ex-gay therapy was, was bad. That was very bad. And then the experience of being in a shooting when I was 19 years old and watching two of my friends killed and two very severely wounded and I was the fifth person in the hallway and the only one who wasn't shot one of whom was like right one of the friends who was killed was like right behind me and to my right I was like right there mm-hmm. and and so that that destroyed me and you know I I have never done uh MDMA or any psychedelics I I would like to, but only under the settings that you're describing, you yeah. know, only under like a very clinical, rigorous setting, because I, I also just know that that my mind is just, you know, I, I feel like I'm in a pretty good place right now. This is the most stable I've ever been in my life, but I still feel like I'm very fragile. My mind is very precarious mm-hmm. and and I've just had to learn to live with that. And so I want to do it under very rigorous conditions. But, you know, just thinking about, I think one of the things that that I find so interesting about this subject is because I've lived with trauma. And if I, if there was something like this that I could have given to, you know, 21 year old Stephen, who was, who was in hell, I wish it was around. Mm-hmm. Um, and also this gets to, I think, the broader and more important issue here, which is the stigma around mental health, mental illness in general, yeah. and and the need to be able to talk about it. And so I'm curious what kind of, how, how have you lived with that? How have you, you know, from one person who has lived with mental illness to another, how have you w- lived with this thing, with, with, 
mental illness that is uh, so stigmatized by society, especially, you know, here in the South, here in very, very Christian culture. I'm in North Carolina. You're in the Charleston area. Mm -hmm. Um, What has that been like for you? Um, So I have always been a person that marches to the beat of my own drum. I... <laughs> I'm a welder. I am so many just different things. An artist, I'm through and through. Wow, you're you're more butch than I am. You're a I'm welder. I'm a welder. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, I'm just I crush the I am a four on the enneagram. If you're familiar with the enneagram at all, I'm a I'm a four. Okay. I'm a four as but well. But of course we are. <laughs> <laughs> but of course we I'm are. I'm so much a four that I hate the word unique because everybody wants to be unique. I'm not unique. I'm Maggie. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm I'm the exact same way. People are like, oh, you just have to be so creative. And I'm like, you don't understand, you don't bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get it. <laughs> so, yes, if there was ever a misunderstood four, you know, it's all of us. <laughs> but exactly. it's especially me. <laughs> Yeah, me too. <laughs> so yeah, I'm. Um, I've always kind of challenged people's ideas on things. Um, I'm the person that goes from zero to a hundred with a, a pretty much everything. Uh, like I went from not having any tattoos to having this gigantic side tattoo. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> you know, I went from uh, not uh, having traveled overseas to just going and visiting Sri Lanka for two weeks and traveling there by myself and like meeting up with a friend, but doing all the like traveling by myself. Um, yeah. So yeah, so uh, I am not afraid to challenge people's ideas on things. So specifically after I went through my MDMA therapy, I couldn't shut up about it. I'd like meet people at a bar and be like, yeah, so I just like, I had PTSD. I went through MDMA therapy. (laughs) You know, I think that's how I heard about you because several, you know, Joey's Vincent from Bad Christian had had you on his podcast. I was also on his show. And and so I, I saw that and then Justin for several months now has been like, oh my God, you need to talk to Maggie. She, she did MDMA and that was like the only thing I knew. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's probably the only thing most people know about me. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I just I've always been a big believer in being fully honest with where I'm at in life and that therapy has changed my life for the better in some of the most amazing ways. And I would be doing a disservice to myself if I wasn't honest with people about how big of a difference it has made in my life in just a short amount of time. I think in January, it will be six months since my uh, uh, time ended in the research. And just in six months, my life is drastically different than it once was. And, you know, I've been a person that struggled with anxiety and depression the majority of my life and I think that um, having some close friends that I do and being able to talk to them through it um, has saved my life multiple times over during the really difficult period of my husband and mine's separation. I had a few different friends that I was able to call and just talk about suicide with that weren't going to shut the conversation down and weren't going to, you know, me talking about it uh, didn't make them feel uncomfortable. 
one of yes. my friends even gave me this really great way to verbalize it. She said that, uh, so she's sober for 10 years and um, told me that her sponsor used to always tell her this, that um, it's not the drink that you want, but it's the effect. So voice it that way. Um, so that was suicide for me. Uh, so I would call her and tell her, hey, I know that suicide is not the answer, but not feeling this pain sounds really nice right now. Yeah, and absolutely. I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. So just, and then real and realizing like saying that out loud, like I understand suicide is not the answer, but the not feeling of the pain is really like what that the goal would be in suicide. Um, and, and having people that were allowing me to voice that and not being scared or not trying to, you know, well, everything will be okay. And if you just pray more, if you just do this, or if you just do that, then you'll be fine. But don't talk to, don't talk about it. Cause I feel like that's a lot of people's responses is just like, for some reason, there's so much fear surrounding other people voicing it. And I think part of it is because once certain people in your life start to voice that they have these feelings and have these struggles, that it's then going to make everybody else in the close vicinity start to realize that they do too. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, I mean, I can go into so many awful experiences of trying to talk about mental health and it failing. But I think, you know, I I had this really formative experience when I was 12. And I don't say this at all to malign my parents. They're great, wonderful, beautiful people who did the best they can. But, you know, I it was a really, really hard time in my life for various reasons. It was kind of a dysfunctional time of my life. And I didn't have the language of mental illness or depression. I, I didn't even, I don't think that was even on my radar. I was just feeling these, this really dark awfulness. And I tried expressing this to my dad. And his first response to me was, hmm, Maybe we should get you into deliverance ministry to have demons cast out of you. And just thinking back, like that was my first, that was the world's first response to me having mental illness. And, you know, I think I've pretty much lived with it since I was 12, you know, on and off to varying degrees. Sometimes it's been manageable. Sometimes it's been invisible, but lurking. Other times it's been, you know, full-blown catastrophic apocalypse. Um but I think that, and I and I didn't even really take that experience seriously until like within the past two years and realizing what that taught me about, what that taught me about being a person with mental illness in the world we live in right now. Mm -hmm. And that it has often felt unsafe, it has often felt dismissive, and it has been overly spiritualized, at least for, you know, people like you and me who grew up, you know, in the, in the Christian South. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I actually grew up in California. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but I did grow up in a Christian culture in California. Um, it's right. not quite the Baptist culture. It was like the very awkward non-denominational culture, which is a whole different thing, <laughs> but uh, similar enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, I want to live in a world where I can talk as freely about my, uh, about my, P my, about my PTSD or my depression or my anxiety as freely as I could talk about a sprained ankle or carpal tunnel yeah you know and and so i that's partly why i have this show to just be able to talk about these things um and it's 
it's uncomfortable and scary for a lot of people, but I just, I encourage them when it comes up to just be like, it's okay. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say anything. You just have to lean into it and be there. It's okay if you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's, I think that I would really voice to anybody that maybe you should lean into some of that uncomfortableness, you know, and figure out why, why is listening to somebody else talk about their own mental health problems so uncomfortable for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you, you say that you were previously a fundamentalist Christian and now you're not. And I'm, I'm curious about that, but in particular, I'm curious if the experience on MDMA had anything, had, had anything to do with that. How did it change your experience of spirituality? Yeah. If at all. Um, I had been in a, a transitional period in my life, really for the last three to five years. I had been moving away from some of the very fundamentalist, legalistic approaches to Christianity um, throughout my marriage. And uh, just the more people I met, the more I experienced, you know, I I got out of my bubble, I moved across the country, um, went to college. So was experiencing all of these different people and realizing, I think that I may have had it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so I started to really loosen my grip on what I thought Christianity looked like in general and, you know, became a supporter of LGBTQ rights and a supporter of um, just a lot of different things that I once uh, was very unsure about. And that's the other thing is that during my trauma, Christianity was a beacon of hope for me that that there was Mm. something better out there. Um, And at the same time, it was also a source of trauma as well. I grew up in this very small church um, that I entered when I was a preteen, which is obviously a difficult time for literally every person ever. (laughs) Every person Um, ever. And like, then it became a place that I could escape to a lot. But because it was a really small church, you know, all the teenagers and preteens knew each other. And there's just a lot of difficulty in that space. And I really trusted one of the female leaders and she ended up being pretty manipulative. Um, Mm. I dated this guy for like a month and then I broke up with him that, you know, he went to our youth group as well and um then we got back together and the youth pastor actually pulled me aside and like had a talking to me about not breaking his heart again and you know just like inserted himself in in a very unhealthy manner yeah so there's just a lot of muddy water with me and christianity when i finally got married and moved out uh away from all of that and met other people and so my my idea of what God wants for us was started to change pretty, started to change a while back. Okay. Um, and then my divorce or my separation from my husband, I'm still in the middle of getting divorced, um, really drastically changed my perspective on God as well. At that point, mm. I was still, you know, praying and actively believing that God like had an active role in our lives. And then that happened and I drew into a lot of anger 
towards God. Um, I experienced a lot of pain and a lot of hurt from my father and was finally starting to become aware of just how much pain and how much hurt. And then I was dealt this blow of finding out that my husband had been cheating on me with multiple other women, like before we even got married. And um, it just rocked my world and my faith. And you know, I was angry. If there was a God, then he fucking sucks. You know, like, why the fuck yeah. would you let your so-called precious creation experience so much pain from literally every man I'd ever trusted? Um, and there was just so much anger. I had to stop using male pronouns in terms of God. Like, I was just so angry. I I, um, I listened to the Liturgist podcast. Um, and they, yeah, they're great. They're amazing. <laughs> they're They've also helped yeah. save my life. Yeah. I listened to God the Mother, and it made me, it, like, reconciled some of my beliefs in God and the universe just by being able to change the pronoun in which I refer to like this great all present being. So being able to switch from male pronouns to female pronouns uh, really gave me this sense of calmness and and then uh, talking to God, but God still was very different than what I had originally viewed it as in the Christian context. Um, so mm-hmm. God kind of became, she became this like mother nature nature, the universe, a healer type of spiritualness. And then I did yes. the MDMA sessions and the the oneness that I felt with the universe. And we talk a lot about your inner healer. And while on the drug, you feel just connected with everything. Um, and so I had this amazing realization that my inner healer and the great healer are one. And um, so, yeah, so I would definitely say that the therapy allowed me to let go of some of the legalism I'd always held in my head and the regulations of what a good person does and what a bad person does and just be more accepting of a lot of different stuff and then also be able to, to let go of a label that I could realize was causing me pain. So the label of Christianity was causing a lot of pain because of what I associate with the word Christian. Yes. And I think that a lot of people can <laughs> identify with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so so you no longer identify as a Christian. Correct. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I think, you know, I think so many people, especially people our age, and, you know, of course, I am in my own little, you know, pretentious hipster circle. <laughs> and so it might not be the best, you know, sample size. But I get the impression that a lot of people are in this in-between place between between or or kind of on this journey from the faith that we were given and we're compromising we're all and i don't mean that in a bad way i mean that in a very positive sense we're all compromising on what stays and what goes yeah and it's an and it's a necessary process. I think it's a good process. And so some of us will end up uh, still identifying as Christian, but with a radically different configuration of what that means mm-hmm. and what that looks like. And then others won't identify as Christian. But, you know, what I often find myself wanting to say to people who get um, antsy about that is, you know, we're all doing the best we can with what's been given to us. Yeah. And, and some people just need to. 
for their own sanity. And I feel like I still identify as a Christian, but I am a very weird Christian. <laughs> I'm I'm also a, I'm also a member of the Satanic Temple, which is a whole other. I don't know if Justin has told you about that or not. But, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> he made mention, yeah, that's mentioned a, it possibly. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. But um, so you know, and, and so I we are all finding ways to uh, to survive our the faith that we were given, whatever that was. Exactly, and that's the other thing is just like so I removed the label. Christian from myself because the label was causing me pain. And I haven't been able to talk to certain of my family members about that because I know the backlash I'm going to get. And I know that they're not going to see that removal of pain from my life. They're just going to be um, blinded by the fact that I don't have that label anymore. And they're going to, you know, like try and talk to me about how much Jesus loves me and how Jesus is jealous for my soul and these things. And I'm just like, that's not healthy for me anymore. Like, exactly. And I'm not saying that that's not healthy at all or in general. I know that there, I mean, like I said, Christianity did help save my life at one point. Mm. And I'm not saying that it is a bad religion or a bad spiritual path. I'm saying that at this point in my own life, I know that it is healthier for me just to not carry that label. That's the other thing is like, I still believe in a God. And yes, my God may be radically different than Christian gods, but, um, Mm -hmm. but I still have morals and still believe in so much of the stuff that Christians would agree. You know, like I believe that love is the best thing that you could possibly do and that my time here on earth is just supposed to be spent loving humans the best way I possibly can. Absolutely. And if I can do that a little bit better by dropping some labels, then I'm going to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree 100% with that. And it makes so many people nervous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, it stresses so many. Oh, my God. I've had so many awkward coffee dates with concerned Christians over the past year. So many awkward coffee dates. Um, <laughs> like, like make, and I am not a confrontational person. Neither am I. I, I think, <laughs> Yeah, I think I can sometimes come off as a confrontational person in my writing and on the show, but I'm really not. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's all just that that's just a role that I play when I feel like it's necessary. But in person, I'm not at all. And so I mean like cringe-worthy, face-burning levels of awkwardness, especially when it got out that I was a member of the Satanic Temple. <laughs> um that that was awkward. That was very awkward. <laughs> yeah. Well, so if people we're we're coming to the end of our hour here which is amazing it feels like it's it's been it feels like it's been 10 yeah. minutes um so uh, before we end here, uh, what resources would you recommend for people who are maybe where you are or, or, or maybe where you were and and what would you what resources would you recommend to them? Um, so I would say check out map. I'm pretty sure it's dot com. It might be dot gov. So that's the people that are actually putting on the MDMA research. Mm, awesome. Um, they have a lot of literature about what 
the process looks like, um, any place that you could get in contact with. There are open enrollment for Zone 3 of the trial in various places across the country. Charleston is still one of them. I think there's like two places in California, um, so but some other places throughout there. But you can find a lot of what the process holds and um, the regulations for that. A lot more answers on the like legalistic side of what the research is. Um, I would very strongly recommend seeing a therapist. In the meantime, it would take a while if you get accepted. It does take a, a little bit to go through all of the hoops. Um, mm. reach out to whomever you can. Like if you are struggling with mental health, find somebody to talk to about it. That absolutely. just can be there for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have any social medias or websites that you, uh, where people can find you? Yeah, I am on Instagram as Maggie sees beauty. It's Maggie underscore sees underscore beauty. Um, I have a Facebook that I absolutely never use. Uh, Instagram is really pretty much my one social media outlet. Okay. So if, awesome. if you want to get in contact with me, hit me up, talk to me about MDMA, uh, <laughs> or therapy or, you know, the color of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Maggie, it has been absolutely wonderful talking to you. I've thoroughly enjoyed Thanks. this. Thanks. I've really enjoyed this too. I, like I've said at the beginning of the podcast, really believe in being open about mental health. Yes, me too. And if ever you want to come back on, just let me know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. Well, that's it for our show this week. The music is by The Jelly Rocks from the album Bang and Whimper. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify. Special thanks goes out to my team, Carson Green and Justin Caleb Bryant, for helping me with all the uh, technical stuff for the show. They do all the images. They do all the posting, all the social media for me. So they do all the... Uh, the menial humdrum job so I can focus on getting you interesting conversations every week. And so big thanks goes out to them. Also, special thanks to my patrons who make this show possible over at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. If you'd like to join their number, I would so appreciate it. I can't do this show without your support. I'm already working full time. Plus, I teach three times a week. I, I'm a yoga teacher, teach three times a week, and I do this show. So uh, this show is really only made possible by the support of listeners. And so if you would like to join their number, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And there you will get for a dollar a month or even five dollars a month, uh, you will get a separate patrons only podcast called The House of Heretics in which Justin and I have rambling unedited conversations about faith and doubt and life and all sorts of things that are probably unsuitable for public consumption, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> Uh, as usual, Sacred Tension is written and edited by me, Stephen Long, and is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. Thanks for listening. <laughs>